BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Warning, the Josh Hammer Show is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Paving a path forward for the new right. If you are a conservative, if you are a religious person, if you are a traditionalist, frankly, if you just love this country, fight back. And exposing the woke left. What is this identity politics drill? Why is the right playing into that? The only way out is through. This is the Josh Hammer Show. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined momentarily by Alex Stein, the host of Prime Time with Alex Stein on Blaze TV. Alex got that show earlier this year, but he's really been kind of up and around the scene over the past few years. You've probably seen him talking to AOC on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. You've probably seen him burst into municipal town meetings when it comes to COVID and all the garbage that happened from the ruling class lockdowns during that horrific ordeal for humanity. Really kind of someone who is, suffice to say, is not afraid to state his opinion and is, you know, slightly on kind of the more eccentric side of things. But looking forward to a really fun conversation with Alex that will happen here in just a few minutes. One other quick thing that I want to quickly flag here. There was a recent case from the Supreme Court that I wanted to very, very briefly touch upon. We're not going to get into the weeds here, but this was this this past week. There was a redistricting case out of Alabama. Now, if you know anything at all uh, about redistricting, about legislative maps, especially about the Deep South, about Alabama, you know that this is dicey territory. The court had a landmark opinion back in 2013, the Shelby County case interpreting the Voting Rights Act when it came to the state of Alabama in particular. And what happened this past week out of Alabama in this Voting Rights Act case was really shocking to a lot of us. So the court, by a 5-4 margin, effectively threw out Alabama's legislative maps. It threw out Alabama's redistricting plan. And Alabama, as you can imagine, has a Republican governor, strong Republican legislature. So they effectively carved up a Republican favored map. If you know anything about how this litigation works, then you got the ACLU and all these various quote unquote, civil rights organizations that sue because you're allegedly disenfranchising black voters, blah, 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 uh, typically under voting two of the Voting Rights Act. And that's what this litigation in particular was. So the court shockingly held that these maps were not kosher, that they were no good and had to be thrown out. You had Chief Justice Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh, actually, who sided with the three liberals, the four other right of center justices found themselves in dissent. So uh, real quick, again, not getting the details here, what I want to flag for you, the audience here, is that this is yet another reminder that despite the exceptional Supreme Court term that we had last year, this allegedly quote-unquote conservative court is still sitting on remarkably shaky foundations. The whole thing really, in many ways, amounts to one grand house of cards. Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, and Neil Gorsuch, who were former President Trump's three nominees to the court, literally none of them, I mean none of them, are actually consistent, rock-ribbed, conservative jurists. There remain two and only two 
actual consistent conservatives on the Supreme Court, they both obviously found themselves in dissent in this particular case out of Alabama. That would be the greatest living American himself, the wonderful Justice Clarence Thomas, and the much underappreciated but also magnificent Justice Sam Alito. That's really it. There are two rock rib conservatives. There are three right of center jurists. Those would be the three Trump nominees. You have the chief justice who was just the true swing vote. And then you have the three libs. That's the basic breakdown of the court. Anyone who tells you that this is a consistently conservative Supreme Court because they have a quote unquote six, three majority. That's how the mainstream media frames this. They're going to throw in the chief justice, John Roberts, who is as fickle and mercurial as ever. They're going to throw him in there with the conservatives. That's garbage. That is total garbage. It is intellectually dishonest. And really, the Alabama case is disheartening, really in no small part, because it could potentially destroy the Republicans' House majority, given how narrow their majority is. If Alabama has to you know, totally change its maps, that four-seat majority could become a one-seat majority, or really kind of who the heck knows. But more fundamentally, what this does is I think it's causing a lot of us who follow the court and its rulings to really, really worry about what is going to happen in the upcoming affirmative action cases, the massive, massive, potentially landmark affirmative action cases out of Harvard and the University of North Carolina that should be coming down any week now. So especially because that's kind of a not kind of it is a racial case the same way that this was. If the court is going wobbly on redistricting voting rights act litigation out of Alabama, who's to say they will not go wobbly on these affirmative action cases that I and many others have been predicting for months now, maybe even a year and a half, two years now, are likely to go our way. So unfortunately, a bit of a black pill there, but we will see what happens. Hopefully, I am wrong about that, and hopefully the court stands strong and does the right thing on affirmative action and getting rid of the systemic racism. That is affirmative action in university missions in America. But wanted to flag that for you, the listener. Go ahead and check that out if you want to, that opinion from last week out of Alabama. But let's take it to a quick commercial break. We're going to get into a much more lighthearted conversation, I would imagine, on the other side of this break. Again, we are bringing on Alex Stein, the host of Prime Time with Alex Stein on Blaze TV. Really looking forward to this conversation. Stay with us. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So as previously mentioned, we are happy to be joined this week by Alex Stein. Alex Stein is the host of Prime Time with Alex Stein on Blaze TV, which launched earlier this year, but really someone who's kind of burst onto the scene from my perspective over the past few years during COVID. A lot of the nonsense that happened during that with these kind of investigative up-close interviews and disruptions of government meetings and all sorts of other fun stuff. So Alex, you've really become kind of a major figure over the past few years, and you're someone that I enjoyed listening to. My fiance and I are actually both big fans so thanks so much for joining us this week wow wow that i really appreciate that josh you know um i'm a kind of a unique flavor i'm an acquired taste so <laughs> I, I like your taste josh <laughs> well i appreciate that so let's get right into the heavy hitting questions 
What is it about AOC, dude? Are you obsessed with her? What's going on there? You know, it's so funny that you mention it. That is the elephant in the room. You know, right now I'm currently in a law, legal battle, just a little civil lawsuit uh, because she's blocked me on Twitter. And actually, all I've asked for, Josh, I have not asked for any money. I've asked for her to unblock me. And you say, oh, that lawsuit's frivolous, Alex. Why would you do that? Well, as a matter of fact, a lot of people have sued Donald Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, settled with Media Matters for blocking them. So there's actually a few other cases that have set a precedent that an elected official, especially where I go to New York, I mean, you know, I probably spend eight to 10 weekends there at least a year. I mean, I really do, you know, in a place in her district, a place that I would like to be safe when I stay at a hotel there or when I, you know, do business there. Um, she blocks me and I'm one of her main constituents. And what she's saying is that she'll unblock me, Josh, but she wants me to never communicate with her again and to, and to also agree to never confront her whatsoever or even try to see her in person. So I'm not agreeing to that. Of course, but this is we've got her first rebut. And uh yeah, she really kind of wants to she'll unblock me, but I can never ever see my sweet AOC angel again. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if I can agree with that. <laughs> so the lawyer in me I, I don't want to go down this path, but the lawyer in me because I went to law school and all that immediately thinks that what she's doing there is possibly unconstitutional. There's a whole doctrine called unconstitutional conditions. She cannot condition anything government related upon your voluntary forfeiture of your constitutional right to free speech. So anyway, we'll see how the courts wind up. But I, suffice to say, I like your chances. Well, I mean, like I said, you know, the chances are they're taking it very serious. I know that. And you wouldn't have expected that if it was so frivolous. And we've been in communication. So am I a stalker? No, I mean, I really, truly actually agree with AOC on more stuff than she probably thinks we disagree on. I mean, I think she was against the omnibus bill. And I think um, I'll be honest. I want to say this about AOC. There are Republican politicians that are much less genuine than AOC, even though I, I disagree with her yeah. ideologically. She is passionate and she is genuine about what she believes in, or at least she comes across as that. She comes across as somebody that cares. So I can respect that. Even if we disagree on a certain topic, I can actually respect her passion. Uh, and you kind of know what she's about, unlike a lot of these politicians where they, you know, give you the impression that they're this way and they're really some way behind the scenes. I think AOC actually is kind of the bartender, the, you know, she got lucky. And I, I think she kind of embraces that. And she used it to her advantage, and now she's one of the most popular politicians in D.C. Yeah, look, I mean, honesty is obviously an extremely rare trait in the political class. I mean, one thing that I have always said about Bernie Sanders, who I agree with on virtually nothing, is that he is shockingly straightforward and candid about who he is. I mean, this is a man who who honeymooned in the old USSR. I mean, he is not hiding who he is, and he is the same person now that he was back during the height of the Cold War, back when Fidel Castro was still ruling in Cuba, all of that stuff. So, you know, some of these people... You may disagree with them on everything, but they are at least honest about who they are. And one thing that I think you and I, Alex, probably also both, and this is really not something that I expected to say on this podcast, even, but I think something that you and I probably both share, actually, with AOC and Bernie Sanders is a deep harbored skepticism of the elites, of the ruling class in America, of the ruling class in the world. This is something that you have definitely talked about a lot. It's something that I've been giving a lot of thought to over the past few years with kind of the rise of, of the Davos class and, you know, this one size fits all globalist agenda. You know, talk to me about kind of how COVID in particular, I think, maybe solidified or hardened your thoughts on the nature of the uniparty ruling class and what that entails for our day to day life. Well, I mean, I agree with you 1000% about the Uniparty, but really it kind of rises above that. You know, these politicians give us the impression that we have a choice between right and left, but really they're all 
in on it. And uh, you just look at the military industrial complex, I think is one of the biggest problems because we are the global leader of the new world order because we are the most militarized nation. So if you just look at it, America, we don't produce anything. We literally don't other than, you know, Raytheon, other than Halliburton, you know, Boeing, we basically sell military equipment. So it's, you know, it's very beneficial for us to stay in constant war. So the people that rule us, this elite class benefit by selling these devices and this military equipment that costs trillions of dollars and they all benefit while while we you know are being basically invaded at the southern border so i know that sounds crazy but they don't really care about american citizens if they want to keep america safe they would do something about america so it's just like we literally the people that are in charge want to destabilize america and make it as weak as possible in order to gain a one world order and it sounds like we're some tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists but it's right in front of our face with the world economic forum and klaus schwab and george soros they tell us what they're doing so it's just whether you choose to pay attention or not it really is that simple right i mean i've gotten called conspiracy theorists a number of times for just using the term great reset referring to davos and the world economic forum klaus schwab but it's literally on their website. I mean, you literally just go to the WEF, the World Economic Forum website. They use the exact term Great Reset. I mean, these people are not hiding the ball whatsoever. Literally not whatsoever. So, I mean, why are people refusing to just look at what they're saying, you think? I mean, is it just a willful ignorance that's blinding so many people? Well, to go back to your first question, I mean, you just have to go back to the COVID protocols. And basically, they that was a beta test to see, you know, how much we will comply. And you know, I even goes to you look at people like Elon Musk, who I love that he's bringing free speech to Twitter, but he's also like into the Neuralink, which is basically transhumanism, which is the idea that, hey, you can plug into this metaverse and live for a thousand years because here on Earth, you're carnal. You only live for 70 years and, and you think, oh, you're another conspiracy theorist. That's a fake thing. You can look at the, the they want to give people prison sentences or they can give them virtual reality prison sentences where it'll make it feel like they served a thousand years in a jail. So this sounds like all out of a movie, but this is literally like the weird, crazy stuff that people want to do. And really and truly, we just want to live our lives right. and there's no middle class. Like there's no way to survive. And these people, the, you know, the elites are like planning for 20 years, a hundred years, a thousand years ahead. It's like, we just want to be able to pay our bills and you know, uh, people some want some college debt relief. Like, not that I want to just relief all that, but I mean, I would much rather that go to that than to uh, an airplane, a trillion dollar airplane that doesn't get off the ground, or another, you know, uh, you know, military industrial complex endeavor in a country that we really don't have any beef with. Because this is what I'm saying: is you look at our wars, the war in Iraq, it was a joke. I mean, there was no weapons of mass destruction. The military industrial complex and the way we left there. That just shows you how much America really cares about, you know, other countries and spreading democracy. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I just don't understand how the elites in general as, as a class, whether it's the biomedical security state, whether it's the military industrial complex, as you said, I don't understand how this entire ruling class, this kind of clerisy that operates, you know, sometimes in the corridors of power behind the scenes, sometimes as we, as we just discussed, very much out in, out in the wide open. I don't understand how they still have any claim to credibility. You mentioned Iraq, which is a wonderful thing to mention. I mean, look, I mean, I was young. I was in high school when the war in Iraq happened. You know, I was kind of the young Bush era neocon. I've changed my views quite a lot. A lot of that as the evidence has required me to change my views on a lot of that. And when it comes to COVID in particular, I mean, I mean how the elites have any credibility after COVID, I, I am just completely gobsmacked at this. I mean, from your perspective, let, let's just talk about COVID just for a quick second, because this is really kind of where you kind of burst onto the scene from my perspective. Mm -hmm. Have the elites who got COVID so wrong paid a fraction of the price from your perspective, a fraction that they really justly should pay? 
zero percent will they ever be held accountable because we go back to iraq we weren't held accountable there this war in the ukraine nobody's being held accountable i mean nobody's going to be held accountable at all and uh, they're going to say watch he's going to come out that jamie fox has heard and they're going to say the protocols cause all these kids to uh basically they stunt their maturation where now it's like sixth graders are reading at a first grade level so this is going to have tremendous later effects and there's going to be egg on their face but we're just going to ignore it and say well we tried our best that's the science we were listening to dr fauci but dr fauci during the aids epidemic was actually you know uh you know let the fda give people azt which was a cancer drug that actually caused people to be more injured too he didn't handle that epidemic very well but there wasn't a social media era where people could call him out right. so listen even dr Donald Trump. Everybody says, "Oh, Donald Trump's that great." I don't really think I have a a, a lot of issues with Donald Trump's presidency. I know that uh, he had a tough road ahead of him. He was being investigated, probably unfairly, but um, which I do think unfairly. But still, a lot of his COVID protocols. He shut down America. He could have kept it. Uh, could have kept it open, and he didn't. So, like, it's kind of just one big group, and we're not in it, Josh. No, we're really not. And, you know, to your point, I, I was living in your city. I was living in Dallas, Texas when COVID began. I remember it was March, April 2020. I was sitting there in my old apartment in uptown Dallas, Texas, looking at my TV, watching those daily 5 p.m. briefings with Donald Trump and Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci. I mean, you know, at that point, I was one of the lemmings like everyone else was. But the question really is now over three years later, after 15 days to slow the spread became, you know, God knows how long for lockdowns, vax mandates, all of that. Are you ready, willing, and able to stand up and look at what happened and perhaps reassess what happened in the final year of the president? Maybe let's go back to that a little bit later in the show because I would love your thoughts more on Trump. Well, I want to make one last yeah, go point. Ahead. I want to make one last point about that, that this is what pisses me off. And this is why, oh, I liked a lot of stuff that Trump did, but this is what pisses me off the most about the pandemic. And you might not even know this, but COVID is real. It's a respiratory illness. SARS, we've had sudden acute respiratory syndrome. We've had a respiratory illnesses for years, MERS, Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome. So I'm not, so I'm not one of these people. Maybe at the beginning, I was like, COVID is not as bad as they, as they say it is. No, there is a serious respiratory illness. People got sick. My mother got COVID. And when she went to the hospital, they didn't offer any monoclonal antibodies, no ivermectin, nothing. All they did was give her remdesivir. That was literally what the FDA told her. My mother's organs filled up with fluid and died six days later. Oh, my like, God. In my so sorry. In the hospital. Then, yeah, no, I, I lost the most important person in my life. You know, the person I love the most. And, and, and what made me so mad is that we didn't even get to give her ivermectin or any not even that might not have even worked but i'm saying that wasn't even an option we couldn't have gone to cvs they had one option and that option is poisoning people because i'm telling you i don't care if you're a conspiracy theorist or not they wanted more people to die to make people feel more you know sad to make the numbers go higher to make more trauma-based mind control so the news so every time cnn had a ticker they wanted that ticker to go up so there's there, there could have been a lot of other protocols in place they could have given people alternative methods for a respiratory illness but they didn't. They wanted people. They wanted the numbers to go up. And my mom was a casualty in that. And I don't care what anybody says. I saw it happen. You know, now I'm like in this legal nightmare with uh, Baylor Scott and White, you know, talking to these, you know, uh, uh, basically medical malpractice attorneys, because even with my case, it'll come out five years later, 10 years later. You know what? We shouldn't have given them remdesivir. Actually, the studies weren't that great. I mean, literally, literally at the beginning of the of the, the vaccine, they said it's 100 percent effective because of a simple sat where, you know, two people didn't get COVID and one person on the placebo did. So it was 100 percent more effective. It was some small, minuscule number that was able for them to cook the book. So. Bill Gates said it. They can lie with numbers. And my mother's a casualty. And that's one of my biggest issues with Donald Trump. Wow. Um, 
I'm terribly sorry. I mean, powerful stuff right there. Um, let's, let's circle back to the Trump stuff because I definitely want to get into 2024 with you, maybe if, if time permits there. But staying for now on the topic of elites, you know, you mentioned someone earlier in the conversation that I think we should probably bring back up again, who, of course, is George Soros. So, you know, Soros is kind of um, one of the elites of the elite, if you will. Um, you know, anyone who says that he is not out there in public is, is, is lying to your face. He's very much out there in public. He had a Wall Street Journal op-ed last July, literally defending why he funds all these horrific so-called reform prosecutors all around the United States. I think, I think the number is that there's been 75 county or city level district attorneys who Soros is funding, comprising roughly 20%, 20% of America's population. So one out of every five Americans is subject to a Soros prosecutor, which makes sense when you consider that New York, Chicago, LA. But the point is, he is publicly out there. His son, Alex Soros, literally was at the White House this week. He tweeted out a photo of meeting with Vice President Kamala Harris. So he is there, his influence is there. But for some reason, Alex, as you know, just as well as I know, you get called anti-Semitic if you have the temerity to call out yeah. George Soros for his horrible influence, which is why Will Sharf, my friend, and I co-founded this group last week, which I know that you've read or heard a little bit about, called Jews Against Soros. Now, I know this probably yes. appeals to you as, as a slightly kind of, you know, shall we say, edgy or trolly-minded Jew yourself. So <laughs> are, are you a Jew against Soros yourself, Alex? Well, I mean, I guess technically, you know, probably biologically I am, but I'm definitely against George Soros because this is why I'm in my family's actually in the bail bond business. And people are like, oh, well, why is it even important to fund these district attorneys? It's because what they're doing is they're using a thing called bail reform to poison our country where a person, if you can, the same form that you would sign to get a public defender, you can basically sign to get an ROR, release on own recognizance bond. So these criminals can just get out with no bail, especially in these big cities like New York. It's happening in Chicago. It's happening now in California. They've gotten rid of bail. And so these criminals know that they can get out of jail for doing these petty crimes. So it's an actual what George Horace is doing by having these DAs not enforcing these crimes is actual poison. Like they're trying to make America as dangerous as possible. And that's not yes. a conspiracy. You're like, why? Why would you want America to be dangerous? It's because they want to destabilize America. They want to make it weaker because it doesn't even matter to them. BlackRock, all these banks on all the properties, even during the financial crash, the property values didn't go down. I think they went up. So it's like it's it's a rigged system. So they literally just want to kind of use fear. You know, they want to make it so they can take away our guns. That's why they want crime to keep increasing, because when they do take away the guns eventually, you know, I don't know if it'll happen in America. That, that'll be a huge issue, obviously. But only the you know cops, military and criminals will have guns. So it's just it's they want to create a dystopian thing, a dystopian society, basically out of like a movie. And George Soros is the leader in that. And it's it's insane. And if you make fun of him, they call you anti-Semitic. And my biological father, Tucker Carlson, who I love, they called him last night on his Twitter 10 minute video anti-Semitic because he made fun of Vladimir Zelensky. So it's just very crazy how they can just label people um, for speaking, you know, about a person. And they just basically can use any sort of tactic they can to demonize you and make you uh, guilty when you're really not. You're just speaking the truth. Well, you know, a friend and I co-wrote an op-ed last November, shortly after the election, about Zelensky in Ukraine, where the, literally the title of our op-ed, if I recall correctly, was Vladimir Zelensky is no Jewish hero. So, you know, my thoughts on that particular issue are certainly well out in the open. I believe he's defended the Azov Battalion as well, who are literally Nazis <laughs> in the Ukraine. I think. I mean, so, uh, you know, go go... I mean, listen, Vladimir Zelensky, I think he's basically, you know, he won because he was an actor. I mean, I think if he actually cared about his people, he would 
not agree with the United Nations and not agree with America to continue this war. I think it'd be very simple to come to some sort of agreement. They wanted the Donbass region to be autonomous. And, you know, it's like, give me a break. All these people are dying. Have you watched these videos, Josh? I'm sure you've seen I've seen some of them. Yeah, of course. It's just disgusting as human beings. I'm anti-war. That's why, you know, that's why I don't really like uh, a lot of what we do with the military industrial complex. We're human beings. We should be able to, even if we disagree, we should be able to disagree and not murder one another. I mean, it's just, it's just insane. I know that might sound hokey dokey or whatever that I don't think that we should have war, but we can agree to disagree and not murder each other and come to some sort of agreement. But sadly, we're going to constantly have war and it's, uh, I don't think it's going to slow down. Like with the Ukraine, I believe World War III is going to happen. I mean, I, I just think it's inevitable where America, you see Lindsey Graham, it's like, oh, we want dead Russians. Why, Lindsey? It's like right. every Russian is not right. bad. I'm not saying Vladimir Putin is great. He's done bad stuff to journalists. But I'm, at the same time, not every Russian is bad. Not every Russian deserves to die. They're human beings. They deserve to live. And so it just makes me sick at what these warmongers want to do. You know, I'm a huge Sports fan in general, but also a big tennis fan. I was watching the French Open, which is one of the, the tennis majors. I was watching a match just the other day, uh, and, and there's a Russian player competing. And to this day, over a year after the war started, the Russian flag is not there next to the Russian player's name. I, I, I mean, you know, from the Olympics, from all these internet, I mean, we're literally just obliterating Russian culture. And say what you will about Vladimir Putin, who obviously is not a particularly good man, but... Russian culture, literature, opera. I mean, we were literally just trying to basically whitewash and, and, and retcon history to write out one of history's most important civilizations. I, I mean, it, it strikes me as just utterly, completely insane, to be honest with you. And we're doing it to ourselves here in America when they take down a Civil War statue. I'm not trying to, you know, uh, what to try to say the Civil War is a great thing, but I'm saying you're deleting our history. It's like literally out of George Orwell's 1984. We won't even know yep. what our history was. Yeah, we have bad stuff. Bad things happen. We shouldn't delete that. We shouldn't, you know, make it where it didn't exist. Sadly, it existed. And that's how we learn from in the future and don't make those future mistakes. So that's that's kind of what they want. They don't want us to have a history. They literally want us to have this like new future. And, and it gets to a conspiratorial where it's like you can even just look at the architecture from the 40s and 50s and 60s. It was so much better than it is now. Like we've just lost our creative spirit as a society. And it's just like this postmodern industrial you know, revolution of the internet. And it's kind of scary if you really envision what the future is going to look like in 100 years at the current trajectory we're at. No, totally. Look, I mean, I personally would love to see conservatives rediscover the, like the importance of aesthetics and, and architectural beauty. Roger Scruton, who passed away, the great you know English conservative, he spoke repeatedly about this. But Alex, let's take it to a quick commercial break, but stay with us, audience. We'll be right back with Alex Stein. He's the host of Primetime with Alex Stein on Blaze TV. Stay with us. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We're here with Alex Stein, the host of Primetime with Alex Stein. So, Alex, let's circle back just real quick to the anti-Semitism conversation. So before the show went live, you and I were kind of just chatting, you know, because your your last name is Stein. It's one of the more 
popular, uh, dare I say, stereotypical kind of Jewish surnames in, in America, perhaps the Western world. You know, you've been on the receiving end of, I imagine, no shortage of, of anti-Semitism. I, I, how has the brunt that you have received as a now very public facing person, how, how has that shaped your views? How has it shaped your attitudes? Any, any kind of thoughts that come to mind based on your own experiences in that respect? Well, I want to just say this very clearly. I am not a victim. Even if somebody tries to victimize me, I've never been a victim and I never want to have a victimhood mentality, even when it comes to my mother. But this is what I've never gotten. And every course everybody's made, you know, jokes about Jews or Judaism. You know, I've heard that growing up. But this is when I blew up, when I blew up, Josh, and I got a deal and I got popular and I got all these followers. Every single thing. I mean, I got a thousand posts. Oh, because he's a Jew, because he's a Jew. That's why he got it. That's why he's popular. Oh, I would get that too. I would be a big podcaster. I would get a deal. And I'm just like, what? And I just, I, cause I'd never experienced that in my life. Right. And it's not even that, you know, not even was, I guess when a person posts, I don't even think all of them are being mean spirited, but I just, it's just, I didn't realize that response. It was, I guess maybe I should have expected that, but I'm not that successful. I have a, a show on the blaze you know, I I'm, I've become popular on Twitter and, and YouTube and social media. I'm making a living doing my dream. So I can see why, you know, people were like, how does that happen? But just every single thing is never talent. I mean, some people say I'm talented. I'm not trying to complain, but just the amount of, oh, well, yeah, it's obviously his last name's Stein. He, he got picked by the global elites. That's why he's on there. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the Illuminati now. And it's kind of like, <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So I just, I'd never dealt with that, Josh. And then, you know, like my, you know, they have it on my, you know, Wikipedia that I'm Jewish and they'll like screenshot that. They'll be like, oh, they'll, they'll put that under the tweet. You know, this is why he's successful. And then it's like my Wikipedia, Alex Stein's Jewish to say, I'm like, okay, it's not, it's not even that it's mean. It's not even that it's that mean, right? Because it's not, but it's just like, I didn't know that would be the response. I didn't know I'd get that so much. That was very unexpected. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, Again, we are not victims. You are not a victim. I am not a victim. No, of, uh, 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 no, no and, and I agree with you entirely on that. But yeah. it is worth pointing out that this whole like you know you know affirmative action for Jews thing. You know, if anything, the opposite is happening. There was actually a wonderful essay yeah. at Tablet Magazine, which is a really great publication a few months ago, talking about how all the Ivy League schools, except for I believe the University of Pennsylvania, might have been the only exception, have you know, massively decrease their Jewish enrollment over the past 15, 20 years or so. So, you know, if anything, this whole kind of affirmative action kind of benefit the Jews thing is actually happening in the complete opposite direction. Probably after Asian Americans who are the most discriminated against, you know, Jews because they historically disproportionately got into all these great schools, industries, jobs, whatever, are now actually being discriminated against under the guise of intersectionality and all this other leftist woke garbage. So anyway, you and I are not victims. Obviously, we've reached success and God willing, we'll reach more success. But, you know, it's worth it's worth pointing that out there, I think, just just briefly as well. And I, and I think it goes to the polarization now. It's like we're just so polarized on both sides or even people on the left or, you know, uh, anti-Jew and people on the far right are. So it's kind of, you know, when you think it would go away, it's kind of almost created an ecosystem of, you know, the people talking crap uh, more so than I think in the 90s or early 2000s. So, right. you know, it's weird. I think it also has to come with the social media era as well you know we're very new to this like we wouldn't in in a long time ago we didn't have twitter we didn't have uh we could leave a comment on anybody that has a digital footprint so we weren't able to kind of like heckle people and uh, so that's kind of changed the amount of hate on the internet not that i'm saying that you know hate speech is probably kind of a lie the way they describe hate speech but because the internet exists there's going to be more animosity sadly and that's why the future of the metaverse and all this technology it's going to be like this 
porn infested hate, uh, you know, chat room, Reddit, Bill. It's just very scary if that is, you know, our society's zeitgeist. We all get it from the Internet. It's it's not a lot of love. There's a lot of uh, uh, hate and shade and salt on the Internet. Yeah, no, dude, I've become more like Luddite sympathetic as I've gotten older. I mean, a lot of these new technologies, frankly, just scare the shit out of me. I, I mean, the metaverse, AI to- Discord, totally terrifies Discord me. Discord is, is it like a, a cancerous uh, thing. You know, these people have these like new chat groups where they can like video call each other and they can. No, I'm just I'm telling you, that's one of the worst ones. I don't even know how to work Discord. I sound like such a boomer, but <laughs> that's just another social media platform where it's just not getting good. It's the Internet is. And I'm not saying we should cancel the Internet, but I think it's it's, it's too far, you know. We've, yeah. we've, I don't know how they dial it back. And especially the internet's a big problem with the massive sexualization of children oh, who yeah. have access to this. So that's why a lot of issues really stem from the internet. No, Maybe, totally. Uh, I, and then like TikTok has its own issues with the Chinese Communist Party, obviously. You know, just this week, the Wall Street Journal or recently with some time they had this report about Instagram with connecting the pedophiles. I mean, like, it's really just a never ending tunnel. I mean, you discover new dirty stuff every day. It's awful. But, you know, Alex, I, because we're a little pressed on time, I want to circle back to an earlier thread of our conversation, which was you had some spicy takes about the former president, Donald Trump. And I, I kind of want to get your thoughts on this 2024 Republican presidential primary as we really kind of get into the thick of it. We got our first debate coming up in August, so about two months away now. You know, Ron DeSantis, who is Trump's you know foremost uh, challenger based on the polling and the donor money and all that, has now formally entered the race. So, you know, based on, on your experience in the final year of Trump's presidency in the way that I think you and I seem like we agree mismanaged, mishandled the COVID pandemic. Do you think that COVID is still an issue for GOP primary voters? And and if so, you know, how much of an issue do you think that that will be? My gut feeling, and I, I think what Ron DeSantis did in Florida was great. I mean, could he have done more? I think everybody could have done more, but I think he did, you know, really well. I don't have really complaints with Ron DeSantis. So I like DeSantis. I think he would be a great presidential candidate. But for some reason, I just think Donald Trump is still going to win the primary. And and I, I liked some of what Donald Trump did. I, I think what happened, he was unfairly investigated. He probably was kind of in over his head taking in the you know presidency. It's hard to just kick everybody out. Right. So you're going to have, you know, people that are double agents, quote unquote, in his uh, cabinet. So I, I get that it's very hard to do his job. So I'll be empathetic to that a little bit. But man, some of the COVID protocols killed me. But I hate all these people, the infighting with the Trump and DeSantis. It's making me sick because everybody's going to have egg on their face because they're going to have to immediately, whoever wins a primary, start supporting that candidate. And if they don't because their ego tells them not to or they just can't because they have so much hate, it just shows you how ingenuine people are. So for me, I personally think Trump will win the primary again because he's Donald Trump. He is this you know, they'll never let him win the presidency again, though. That's the problem. So that's where it's like, I, you know, I like Trump. I think it was unfair. I, I think he would actually have to get my vote in the primary right now, only because I do think that he got kind of um, messed with. But at the same time, I'm almost kind of doing that because I think he'll win. It's kind of sounds weird. I, I just think everybody's going to still go MAGA and then they're going to put like Gavin Newsom or I don't know, Michelle Obama. I don't know who, it, who it's going to be, but it's going to be the same. Not Biden. So you think Biden's not the nominee for the Dems next year? I think a lot of this Hunter Biden stuff, how they're like, you know, waiting for this FBI leak to come out. That is, they all know that Biden has done illegal business dealings. I mean, Hunter Biden, really, Hunter Biden that he smokes crack and kind of makes him likable. I mean, they call me crazy. It makes him seem like a normal human being, like, you know, kind of 
uh, like personable, but he's obviously been the fall guy or a bad guy, or, you know, he's been involved in illegal business dealings. I think that's obvious. You know, there's, there's uh, evidence that he's done with China, with the Ukraine, with, uh, you know, being the part of Burisma. So it's just, I think there's going to be where they get they let Biden be president, but they're going to have him maybe step down because they're going to say, oh, this is bad. Or maybe they let him finish his presidency or something. He can pardon himself. I don't know. But there's going to be something where he's falling down at the Air Force Academy. I mean, he's just not all there. And really him falling down. I don't agree with him anything politically, but that made me sick. I don't like watching yeah. our president stumble and bumble. That's totally. not I, I, I have I have. I have a little respect for Joe Biden as the president, for sure. He is the president, but he's still, you know, he's 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 out of his league right now. He's not and he's not calling the shots. So this is how we know we go back to what we said earlier. Obviously, we're run by a deep state of shot callers and it's not Joe Biden. So what about RFK? You strike me as someone who's probably sympathetic to a lot of what RFK says, especially about COVID, I would imagine. Right. Oh, are you kidding? The guy's awesome. I mean, just, well, you know, he's kind of, he's kind of funny about climate change. I still think climate change is not, I mean, I, you know, I go so far as just saying, you know, they, they admit that they put, you know, aerosols and cloud seeding in the weather. Like they kind of want there to be bad weather. So call me crazy on that one. I know. So I, I'm kind of a weird, not a climate change denier because obviously we have an effect if we go and we, you know, deforest an area, but as they tell us that the sea level is going to rise, they've been saying that for a long time, but Barack Obama is still buying houses in Martha's Vineyard and, and you know, <laughs> Bill Gates bought a $20 million house in San Diego on the beach. So I, I'm not too, I don't think it's going to rise in, in our lifetime to the levels they say it will. So other than that, other than how much he's talked about that, I love RFK. I mean, he's talked about the vaccine. I mean, his father was assassinated. I mean, he's, uh, you know, just, uh, he's obviously lost a lot and he has a lot to lose. I think still speaking out, his wife, I think is a, you know, liberal Cheryl Hines. And he's passionate and he even talks about the correlation of these vaccines, how, you know, they don't even prevent transmission. And him saying that basically is, you know, he's 86. He gets, you know, a lot of hate. And he, I think he's speaking a lot of facts. So, yeah, I mean, ideologically, I agree with him a lot. I think if you look at the increase in, once again, this, I'll say this, this will be a spicy take. You look at the increase of autism, and you look at the increase in vaccine schedules, and he brings that up. And people freak out. I don't know why we freak out about that. I don't know why that can't be looked into more. But once again, I don't trust the pharmaceutical industrial complex one bit. And I believe that we should have some form of socialized health care, at least caps. I mean, at least something affordable where people can go to the hospital. But uh, no, it's a racket and uh, they don't want us healthy. The, the medical industrial complex wants to keep us sick. And by giving us, you know, unnecessary medications, I mean, every kid that says they're depressed, they're going to give them an antidepressant. Right. And one of the biggest side effects of an antidepressant is suicide, you know, uh, idolization or, you know, idealization, whatever the proper term is. But th it increases the risk of suicide. So why would you give a suicidal person a pill that would make them more suicidal? It doesn't make sense. And I'm not a doctor, but call me crazy. Yeah. One of the things about the RFK candidacy and he, you know, he's polling around 20 percent right now, which is not negligible. He's probably not going to take out Biden at that number, but anything is possible. One thing about his candidacy that really it reminds me of was the Bernie Sanders surge back in 2016. You had this kind of Trump Bernie crossover voter back in 2016, similar to I, I imagine you have kind of like an RFK, then Trump or DeSantis crossover voter here in 2024. And it's really just a reminder that the partisan labels, Republican Party, Democratic Party, really don't necessarily mean a whole lot because the paradigm these days is the elites and the ruling class, as you and I have discussed, versus we the people, normal people that reject kind of the the perceived wisdom, the orthodoxies of the biomedical security state, the pharmaceutical complex, all these things. So 
it's really been kind of a nice reminder to me that that kind of dynamic that I first saw back in 2015 with the rise of Sanders and Trump is still very much in play here in the year 2023. So, Alice, we're short on time, but I want to ask you one final question, which is you're a funny dude. I, I think you know everyone who listens to your show knows that. What is the role of of humor and comedy for a right of center personality and, and why is it important for folks like you to go about your business with kind of the, the attitude and, and, and the comedic uh, way about you that, that you have? Well, some people would argue with you that it's terrible for society. What I do, you know, some people say that it's a, a poison. A lot of people on the right, they got mad. I went recently went viral. I put on the tuck friendly bathing suit at target and prance around the store and I get <laughs> killed on the right wing. They say, Oh, well, he's actually worse than the groomers. And, and uh, what I'm saying with comedy is I feel like we should push the limits, but because we're so polarized, the people on the far left don't like it. The people on the far right hate it, but the people in the middle love it. They love comedy. It's like the sugar that makes the medicine go down. So for me, I kind of, when I started podcasting, I was like, oh, I'm going to try to wake people up. I'm going to like give them facts and be kind of serious, obviously in a joking way. But then I kind of realized like people don't even want to wake up. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink it. So I, I feel like I can almost... For lack of a better analogy, I can red pill people through comedy or make them ask a question about Scientology or this weird thing or that by using humor, stuff that like people wouldn't even hear in their everyday lives and kind of making fun of politicians and mocking them because, I, they, you know, they mock us. So I think it's very important. Now, am I some super important person to society? No, but we should all be memeing and joking and laughing at these people because I promise you behind closed doors, they're laughing at us. Like, oh, they're going to buy our product. They're going to drink our Bud Light. You know, they don't care. I'm just saying everybody, they don't care about us personally. These multinational corporations, they know we're going to buy their product. They know that they have all the control. So we need to make fun of Bud Light. We need to make fun of, uh, uh, what is the other one? Uh, North Face. I I can't think of the other. uh, Target? uh, Ford. Yeah, Target. Excuse me, I guess we were just talking about Target. You know, we just need to, if we don't like what they're doing, if we don't, if we think they're grooming uh, kids, we got to just uh, not support them. And that's where we're at in this weird, for lack of a better analogy, again, culture war, which I hate. But yeah. comedy is key to win it, I think. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I mean, look, there's one thing that we have discovered over the, over the past couple months as Bud Light and Target have lost massive, massive value in their market capitalization is that conservatives, but really not just conservatives. I mean, like, basic Americans who want normalcy and sanity and their products to not be foisting this cultural garbage, this civilizational arson upon them and their children, is that we actually have power, that we have a voice, and it mm-hmm. it is incumbent upon us to use that voice. But, you know, Alex, uh, for those who don't already follow you, where can the audience go ahead and find your stuff? Well, uh, follow me at uh, on Twitter, AlexDine99, and please go to YouTube and follow Rhyme time with Alex Stein. I just Googled that. It should be the first thing that comes up, but it, go watch my YouTube show. I need more people to watch it uh, on the blaze as well. Maybe go buy, buy a blaze subscription. If you're really uh, a big supporter, but uh, I'm just so lucky to have my job there. The people there are so great. And uh, you know, in this kind of future digital media, I think these dinosaur companies, the advertising dollars are going to wash up and in, in the future is going to be independent broadcasters. So just the opportunity that I have at the blaze. If you guys would go listen at that show, please you help me keep my job. <laughs> well, there you go, guys. Alex, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thank you guys. I really appreciate it, Josh.
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Alex Stein. We wanted to bring on Alex, not just because he is a funny dude, obviously, but because more so than I think a lot of other people out there in the right of center commentariat, more generally speaking, he understands that dynamic that we were talking about at the very end of our conversation about RFK, Bernie and Trump back in 2016, which is that our political debates these days are so often not necessarily between the establishments of the two political parties, between the DNC and the RNC. No, that's really just not how it works. I mean, that is kind of, it's low-hanging fruit for the masses. I mean, it's easy for the Chiron generators on cable news. It's easy for the Twitterati to talk as if that is the real debate that is going on there. But so often, these partisan labels actually masquerade a much more profound, fundamental, and in many ways, actually darker and more insidious way to view our politics, which I think Alex has kind of tapped into through his own way, and we try to do on this show as well, which is this general notion of the ruling class, which, again, was initially kind of brought into the right of center conversation by the late great Angelo Cotevilla back in his landmark essay during the Tea Party era around 2010 or so, but really is the kind of the term that I have fully embraced over the past few years and that we talk about a lot, which is there really is a Davos. There really is a World Economic Forum. There really is a World Health Organization. I mean, these transnational institutions led by the elites and the experts that have so often led us astray from Iraq to the COVID lockdowns, that, that really does exist. That is not a conspiracy theory. Again, they're talking about it out in the open. And so often, there are so many of us who really just want to get by and not deal with that garbage. So, you know, I think Alex understands that a lot, which is why we wanted to bring him on there. Glad that he enjoyed the whole Jews Against Soros thing as well. Again, if you want to go ahead and check that out, it's at JewsAgainstSoros.com. So once again, we hope you enjoy this conversation with Alex Stein. We will be back with you with more great programming in our next episode. So until then, I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time. 